John, welcome to the metagame. Thank you, Daniel. It's a great pleasure to be here and to see you again. It's been a while. I wanted to start by actually saying thank you because I was thinking about the impact that your work has had on my life. And I wanted to find a way to compress it. And I wanted to share it with you and, and see uh, uh, your reaction to it. I'm referring specifically to your lecture series on awakening from the meaning crisis. Mm -hmm. And one thing I took away from that was it's almost like you, you used words to show the limits of words. Like mm -hmm. you took propositional knowledge to its end and then pointed to a place beyond propositions. Mm -hmm. And, and this reminds me of a quote by Nietzsche, which I, I want to get your reaction to, which he said, uh, to grasp the limits of reason, only this is true philosophy. Mm -hmm. So first of all, do you agree with that? And secondly, do you believe that that's been a good characterization of at least part of what you've been up to? Yeah, I like that actually. Um, I, I say of Nietzsche, what he, what he said of Socrates, He's so close to me, I'm always fighting him, um, which is, um, you know, and I, 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 you know, I spent uh, as an undergrad and as a, a graduate, I spent like three or four years, maybe closer to five, deeply reading and reading Nietzsche and then reading Heidegger's take on Nietzsche and things like that. So, um, and I, I think I, 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 I have the same attitude that the deep ambivalence I have towards Heidegger is what I also have towards Nietzsche. But I like that quote, but it, it, it's interesting because there, there's two ways in which that can be seen. And um, I'm sort of being reminded of this because I'm reading Paul Tyson's book right now, uh, Returning to Reality, where he's talking about the viability of what he calls Christian Platonism in the world today. Um, and that's not as arcane as it sounds. Uh, because one way of understanding Platonism, especially Neoplatonism, is exactly what you said. The rationally rigorous, uh, and not just through argumentation, but through actual cognitive and existential transformation, the, the, uh, you know, the, rig the rationally rigorous pursuit of the limits of reason so that you can see beyond reason uh, to that which reason always aspired. Um, and this is very much, and this is why ultimately love is, and, and Spinoza got this, uh, 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 that love is ultimately more important uh, to Plato than, uh, than reason. And we have to remember that his notion of reason is logos, which is not the same as our notion of logic. Um, so it's something much more comprehensive. And that's why I tried to indicate it, it requires transformation and aspiration. And, and we're starting to recover that. We're starting to cover that in the work of L.A. Paul and Agnes Kellard, who have just had a profound impact on me. And earlier, Iris Murdoch. It's not surprising to me that they're all women hmm. that are doing this um, really important work, getting us to the place again where we see, um, uh, you know, we, we have to both reinterpret uh, rationality to be much more encompassing than logical argumentation, and then it ultimately points us towards um, aspects of our stance towards reality uh, that are not uh, reducible uh, to um, reason broadly construed. Uh, and, and that has ultimately do, to do with, with love and meaning. Um, that's one way of, of seeing it. And so there's that Neoplatonic version and it's getting a kind of revival. And of course, there's the other, uh, way you can go which is to you know that philosophy takes you to the limits of reason and and then leaves you trapped within um the prison 
um, and, and then and then you can and the size and shape of that prison can vary from kind of a human skepticism, which is very small indeed, a sort of specious present moment of atomic experience, or it can be a, a more convoluted and complex, but nevertheless, um, uh, you know, limited. And there's various ways of reading some aspects of postmodernism that puts you there. Um, and then what you find is you find weird connections between these two. So Derrida's, Derrida's fascination with negative theology, which comes out of the Neoplatonic tradition, and yet he, of course, is within, and John Caputo picking up on this and other people, Mark Taylor. And so, you, yeah, and I'm interested in all of, I, I, I'm interested in all three of those things, the Neoplatonic stance on the limits of reason, the postmodern stance, and, and, and the, the new sort of, uh, I, I almost want to call it post-theological stance on the relationship uh, between them. All of those fascinate me right now. And um, I think if, if you include all those dimensionalities in the Nietzsche quote, then I think they do capture a lot of what is driving me right now. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on there. Um, first, I, I, I'm, curious, I'm curious why you weren't surprised that those three philosophers you mentioned L.A. Paul, Agnes Callard, and I can't remember the third, but why you weren't surprised that they're women. Iris Murdoch. Iris Murdoch. Uh, because I, mean, I, I think that the neglect of women within academic philosophy has, and, and, and you know, I'm, we're talking about something in probability terms. We're not talking about some hard, yeah. fast determination. Okay, there's there's important exceptions and then the exceptions can grow to become the rule and that's something I, i'm pointing to um and that's something i i i, I deeply encourage uh, but i think right once we put it in that frame the the neglect of women with academic philosophy and the neglect of those aspects of reason and what is transrational that are central to human cognition and uh, human meaning making, um, we're, we're, we're similarly neglected. Um, and, and I think the two neglects uh, go hand in hand. And I think it's Genevieve Lloyd's The Man of Reason was sort of the seminal work that pointed out uh, that. It's a good book, by the way, I recommend it. Um, and so, again, I, I, I'm, I don't want to use this term because I, it's contentious to the point of being almost useless. But I don't have a replacement term, so I'm using it almost like a proper name with referent, like Peter. It doesn't necessarily have any determinate meaning to it. Just mm. want to point with it. But the more feminine aspects, and again, I'm very unhappy with that word. But the more feminine aspects of our cognition and our existential orientation and stance um, have been neglected, I think, to our detriment, um, and that we are finding that. Uh, women philosophers have been much better at bringing that to the fore. Now, let's be clear. I think, you know, uh, especially uh, Laura L.A. Paul, I know her, and, and Agnes Keller, their work is rigorous. There's no sort of sloppy romanticism. Same thing with Murdoch. She's not a quite as, you know, a tight argue, arguer, but she's conceptually very tight um, and rigorous and, and, and insightful. Um, the, and so, I think we need to properly recover that in order to move, move reason back into 
being in in service of wisdom, uh, mm-hmm. which is what I see all of these um, all of these uh, women philosophers uh, pointing to. It's very clear in all three of them that that's part of what's going on, especially in in, in Murdoch and and Callard. Um, and I think it's also the case in L.A. Paul because the, she's trying to figure out how do we go through fundamental transformation when we can't sort of deduce or infer our way through it. What is wisdom? <laughs> wisdom is one of the one of those things that I most love and aspire to, which is not mm. a very good definition. Um, I, I'm laughing because um, I, I was very fortunate. Igor Grossman put it together. Uh, to participate with uh, a lot of the leading thinkers in psychology, neuroscience, cognitive science, philosophy about wisdom. It was called the Wisdom Task Force, which sounds very Orwellian. Uh, were, oh no, it's the wisdom police. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and we were, we were literally, and, and you know, some of us were physically, some of us uh, were uh, virtually, but we, you know, we were literally in the same room together for 10 hours and discussion and survey and review and theoretical debate. And we produced a sort of a consensus paper um, that came out in a high impact journal um, in 2019. So there is something like an emerging consensus. Um, and then of course, each, each person puts a particular slant on it. I think of wisdom, I, can, I can't give you so much a definition as a theory. Mm. Um, which I think is actually more appropriate to the phenomenon. Um, so I think we, we, we should build wisdom upwards from intelligence. I think I've got a stain on my shirt. <laughs> um, and and um, so I, I, I've argued, and I've got this extensively out there in, in publication and videos, that the core of intelligence is, is a dynamically self-organizing, evolving capacity uh, to be involved in relevance realization, zooming in on relevant information, ignoring irrelevant information. And that, that comes before categorization, conceptualization, inference, right? Um, and that uh, what, what we call rationality is the, 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 the project of trying to deal with the inevitable self-deception that emerges as we're using our relevance realization machinery because it works basically by biasing us and making us ignore what we unconsciously and automatically deem irrelevant. And most of the time that's deeply adaptive and necessary for being a finite cognitive agent. But the price we pay is that sometimes we're ignoring and biased in a way that's deceptive, right? That thwarts our very goals is self-destructive. And so what we do is we learn ecologies of practices that are also evolving uh, right, so that they can sort of fit in a parallel fashion the dynamics of our evolving cognition and intervene so that we can reliably and uh, systemically and systematically overcome that self-deception. And when we overcome the self-deception, something else is uh, being afforded because relevance isn't in me or in the world. It's the way the world and I are connected together mm-hmm. or the way me and my body um, and, and are connected together or the way me and other people are culturally connected together. And it turns out that when, when we're talking about meaning in life, what we're actually pointing to are the, those dimensions of how we, are we, how we are connected, fitted, belonging with and in and to the world, to other people and to ourselves. And that's, that's at the core of, 
uh, the experience of meaning in life. So as these, as rationality uh, ameliorates foolishness, it also affords flourishing. And then the idea here is that, again, I got a lot out there about this and we've already pointed towards it. But I, I think of knowing um, as much more comprehensive as the proposition, as the manipulation of propositions to get believed. Right. I think knowing is the, you know, the manipulation of our sensory motor loop to get skills. I think uh, knowing is the manipulation of our state of mind and situational awareness in order to get right perspectives that, uh, that give us presence. And I think knowing is the way the agent and the arena relationship is mutually shaped so that we fit the world and affordances for agency and action and also for things uh, having a particular identity to us are made available. And each one of those levels is, is, is a way in which we're doing relevance realization. Each one is capable of a pattern of self-deception. So each one needs its own kind of rationality or perhaps if you want a better term, its own kind of reasonableness. Mm. And then getting all of those to coordinate so they stack and align and mutually reinforce rather than conflicting with each other um, so that you have a kind of rationally self-transcending rationality that affords profound, the profoundest relevance realization, the, profounded, the profoundest fittedness to the world, uh, and therefore the profoundest understanding and meaning, uh, that's wisdom. So I, I love that. And I, I wanna play it back um, in my words. So first there's this problem where we have to ignore most of reality because it's too complex and we're finite. Yeah. And that's the problem of relevance realization. And yes. there's various ways that we filter reality that sometimes suit us and then sometimes lead to self-deception because you're ignoring things that you shouldn't be ignoring. Exactly. Wisdom is the term for that continually adaptive process where we're trying to do relevance realization yeah. and you'll never fully figure it out. It's just kind of like a, a process as opposed to a state. And then there's the four types of knowing which you alluded to that feed into, or, or are the elements that feed into wisdom? Is that, is that a good way to characterize it? Yeah, it, 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 I mean, the, the, the connection between um, is, like you say, there's the self-deception that arises. And what we're doing is we, we're using our intelligence to learn what I call psychotechnologies, ecologies and practices that help ameliorate uh, the self-deception and thereby in a second order and third order kind of fashion, enhance our relevance realization. The same way we can use our intelligence to make a tool that enhances our physiological agency. We can right. use our intelligence to build, you know, mental and existential tools, if you'll allow me that, that, you know, enhance our cognitive and existential agency. And that enhances meaning in life. And that's wisdom. And as you said, when, when it has to do with not just, it's the most comprehensive kind of reasonableness because it isn't just logical argumentative reasonableness. It's also skillfulness. It's also that ability where you meet with people who are really present and really know how to show up that kind of authenticity that, right? And then people uh, at, at the deepest level who are really know how to fit their world and they're, and they're transforming their identity in a way that really keeps them in contact with the identity of, uh, of the things in their world and how those are shifting, a kind of faithfulness to reality, a kind mm -hmm. of ability to fall deeply in love with, with reality. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack the, the four types of knowing? I think they'll be useful. Sure, sure. Um, so um, 
propositional knowing is the one that is most predominant um, and for good and for, for good and for ill in our culture. I mean, its predominance has uh, given us a, a, metaph a metaphysics and epistemology that has really platformed um, science. And uh, I'm a scientist, and I think that's great, but it has also led to the neglect. Here's the relevance realization. It's led to the neglect of the other kinds of knowing. And what's been happening in cognitive science in the last 20 to 30 years is a rediscovery of these other kinds of knowing. So propositions work in terms of you know, inferences that modify your beliefs and you get a sense of conviction that they're true and they're stored in what's called semantic memory. And that's sort of, and then below that is not knowing that something is the case. That's what propositional knowledge is. I know that cats are mammal, but you have procedural knowledge. I know how to do something. I know how, how to catch a ball, how to ride a bike, how to do Tai Chi Chuan, how to kiss somebody I love, right? Things like that. Um, and that's not about beliefs, that's about skills and what you're mo motiv modifying. You're not doing inference, you're mo mo modifying your sensory motor loop with the world and you're not getting a sense of truth, you're getting a sense of power and, what, and that's stored in what's called, <laughs> appropriate enough, procedural memory, which is distinct from semantic memory. But procedural memory, if you think about it, skills, you you have to you have to know when to apply and acquire your skills when and where and how. That's called situational awareness. And what what is situational awareness? Well, situational awareness is your ability to create a perspective. It's to foreground and background, right? It's to do salience landscaping, make certain things stand out and and shift it in a dynamic fashion. So, that, like swimming, I'm not trying to use my swimming skill right now, right? It's it's just not doesn't, right? The situational awareness says no. But if that's not that's not appropriate. It's not relevant, and the, and and they're and these two are interdefining. They're interpenetrating. Your situational awareness and your what we call state of mind are interdefining. Like right now, for example, I presume it seems you're sober. You're not particularly tired, uh, right? And and that and the situation, right? And we and, and we know from work on virtual reality what the what the what the criterion of realness is. There, hmm. it's not power. It's not uh, truth, it's presence. What, what people are after in virtual reality for is a sense of presence, a sense of really being in the game and the game really being present to them. And this, this, is, this is what you get in perspectival knowing. And it's stored in what's called episodic memory, where you remember situations from a particular perspective. And then below that in grounding, and this is order of grounding, the propositional knowing requires procedural skills for its use. The procedural requires perspectival situational awareness. And ultimately, there's your participatory knowing. The participatory knowing that is the, is the connectedness to reality that emerges about how, at biological, cultural, and cognitive levels, how you and the environment are being mutually shaped to fit each other. So you get what emerges is what Gibson called affordances. Um, like my favorite example is the graspability of this cup, right? My hand evolved and uh, like to grasp objects of a certain size, but we did niche construction. We also started shaping the environment so that more and more of these kinds of things become available to us. Notice the word available here, mm. right? And then I get a culture that makes a particular tool and teaches me, right, how to fit. And then right now I'm thirsty and that, that draws out the aspect of this being a cup that I, can, that I can use to drink. And all those things now fit me together and this is graspable and usable by me. 
And all of that's happening and has to happen um, in order for me to, without affordance, like you've noticed that the grasp of ability isn't in the cup because it can't be grasped by an ant. It's not in my hand because I can't grasp Africa, right? Uh, right. It, it's, it's a real relation. And so participatory knowing is those real relations of affordance. And what they're there is they're there available to you. They are a field of possibilities for agent arena co-identification. I can be a particular actor and the world shows up as a, as a particular arena in which my actions make sense, like me in the cup. And, and then what happens is the perspectival knowing makes, sal makes salient, helps me, you know, actualize, right? The, some of the affordances are then made, right? Are brought into my awareness, into my situational awareness. And then that selects some of the skills that I bring to bear. And then that influences what evidence and reasoning I engage in, in order to form my beliefs. And the deepest level, I did the level of memory for each. I did semantic and procedural episodic. That deepest level of memory at the participatory level is this weird kind of memory you call yourself. Hmm. It's the sense of ego. Uh, the sense that you are a continuous identity that fits into a continuous identity of the world in a continuous way. Now, this is all, of course, philosophically and spiritually contentious. It's why I'm doing this series right now with Greg Enriquez and Christopher Mastriecho called The Elusive Eye on the mm. Nature and Function of the Self. Uh, but we do have uh, uh, we do have this kind of memory, the, the kind of memory that is lost when somebody has amnesia, right? They they won't they don't lose their semantic memories. If you've seen Memento, they haven't lost their skills, and of course they still have their consciousness, state of mind, and perspectival knowing. They move around the world effectively, but they don't know who they are anymore. They've lost that, and they and they and they and they so they don't belong. They don't belong anywhere. They don't fit in any anywhere. And you, and you can get even senses of that when you experience loneliness or mm. homesickness or cultural shock. There's something at the level of the participatory knowing isn't, isn't working quite right. So I want to share a personal example of what feels like an incremental step towards wisdom in my life. And I want to see how I could explain it using the four types of knowing. Sure. So one thing that's come up a lot in my intimate relationships over the years is this very uh, typical situation where I'll get into an argument with my partner and I am being very careful with the words that I use and trying my best to get my words to map on to what has happened in reality or what I think has happened. So right. we get into an argument and I'm, I'm being very careful with my words and I'm, I'm being very precise. And it's just, meanwhile, the emotional tension is just building and building and I keep yep. using the same tool of propositions to try to, to yep. create a sense of understanding and it doesn't work. And what I've learned is that in many of those situations, um, the best thing I could have done was just stop talking and, and give that person a hug. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's always felt like an orthogonal move that uh, didn't come naturally to me. I'm getting more comfortable with it, but uh, to me, I'm over-indexing on propositions and then something happens to maybe my relevance realization. Yep. And then I realize there's another thing I can do here. What, what is that? Is that, um, how would you explain that using the four P's? Yeah. Uh, thank you. I think that's a great example. 
that's, that's a really good example. And it also points to something that's becoming more prominent in my thinking. Um, so the, so the, 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 the problem with the propositional is it tends to situate us at the categorical um, and it tends to orient us towards facts um, rather than, um, you know, uh, th there's a lot more in here, but sort of the salience of the facts and the meaning of the facts to us. And the problem with that is your, the person, uh, I'll just call them your partner for lack of a better mm -hmm. reference. You, you're, the problem with your partner is that this is probably not primarily an issue of uh, of uh, knowledge uh, and evidence. It's an issue of understanding and relevance, and those aren't the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and typically, the understanding that is wanted there is non-categorical understanding. They want you to understand the particularities of. Uh, of of them and of this relationship, uh, rather than um, it being categorized, and they they could perhaps feel that as you move into this conceptual third person space, you're not present uh, to them in the way they want, because what they're actually after is a connection, and why they're at the connection is because a lot of these, and this is right, and more and more research is showing us. A lot of this has to do at the participatory level with what's called attachment theory, mm. uh, which is, uh, you know, a, a lot of social psychology is going through the replication crisis, uh, but not attachment theory. Attachment theory is rigorous and robust, you know, uh, Bowlby and Ainsworth, and then uh, people like Susan Johnson who have, you know, brought it into uh, helping us to understand how, how much of an impact it has on our uh, relationships. And so what's typically happening is a conflict of attachment style. Um, uh, and one thing, and here, I don't want to presume on you. Right, right. It was your person. So now, now I have to speak generally, okay? So I, I want that clearly understood. But often when people move into propositional discourse and they're trying to be rigorous, they are actually engaging in an avoidant attachment style with somebody who has an anxious attachment style. And the, what the anxious person wants is they want signs that you are going to be emotionally available and present and connected. And they're feeling you going off into justification uh, and explication language. And so that is having ex exactly the opposite effect. So at the level of participatory knowing, the level of how we assume and assign identities and try to connect and create the affordances for intimacy, that's being undermined. And then it's, re it's ramifying up through, you're, you're not showing up as much as you should perspectively, and therefore you're not bringing the right skills to bear on this problem. It's not a problem of getting the correct beliefs into people's heads. It, the skills here are the skills that we need when we are trying to appropriately connect to other human beings uh, because we need to fundamentally share identity with them. And getting that right uh, isn't captured well with our beliefs. So think about Think about faithfulness, uh, which isn't a matter of getting the final set of correct beliefs about your partner, even if that were possible. Mm. Uh, instead, it's about, it's much more like biological adaptivity. It's the ability to evolve your process of identification with yourself and with other people so that you can maintain a continuity of contact with them as they grow and change and as you grow and change. And trying to get the theory about that um, can actually 
mishandle things. Uh, and, and this is very much like, you know, here's a, a, a trick when you're doing martial arts and you spar with somebody. Um, compliment them and ask them how they did it. That was a great, that was a great, you know, that was a great block. How did you do that? And then they analyze it and they go into propositional thinking and they just collapse. Right. And, then you beat, and then you beat the crap out of it. You're doing something analogous to that when you go into that headspace when what's actually at work, like, and, and what we're talking about is often not the issue. What we're talking about is often symptomatic of the fact that there is, you know, in these kinds of situations, there's typically a clash of attachment styles that needs to be worked out much more at the participatory uh, perspectival level so that we can bring the right communication skills to bear. We wanna, you, often what we're doing is communicating when we wanna be communing and we get locked into communication and we, and we forget that it's ultimately in service of the communing. I, I love that. I, I feel like um, somewhere uh, my ex-girlfriends are clapping, listening along to this. <laughs> um, yeah, there, there's something you said in there that I've, I've, I felt, uh, I guess, like a moment of personal insight because you said it's not a problem of getting the correct beliefs across no. or into, into someone's head. And I realized that uh, that's like an unconscious motive of mine constantly in relationships where there's, in, in all relationships, there's this idea that we need to first establish share re shared reality by having the correct beliefs in both of our heads. And then we can have a discussion about something else. It's like a, it's some sort of order of operations thing that I'm doing that mm. uh, may not actually be suited for many situations. Maybe in some situations it's appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I think it's appropriate when we're doing science, for example. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a big and important thing. And I'm not being dismissive. But notice that it, it's maybe, you know, maybe what we're really talking about is a shared understanding of reality, uh, which isn't the same thing. Uh, note it, and, and, and Elgin makes this clear in her book, True Enough. And, and a lot of the current work in psychology and the philosophy of science on understanding and how it's different from knowledge we will sacrifice true belief in order to pedagogically afford understanding. Open a physics textbook and you will see the solar system picture of the atom. That is mostly false. Mm -hmm. that, but why do we keep putting it in the textbook? Because it gets people, it trains people the right skills, right? The right procedural knowledge and the right salience landscape, how to take the right perspective that will actually enable them to do the science they need to do, right? So you have to think about the fact that very often um, the pursuit of exact truth you know, can be misplaced and, and, and premature and actually thwart the understanding that, that, that is much more important. Uh, you and I, like, think about it. Um, we really can't even disagree unless we've got some shared understanding, which isn't the same thing as having the, the, the same beliefs, right? Some of it's belief, but also it's that we we are finding the same things relevant and salient. If I start talking about a bunch of things, even if I say it's true and I'm linking them together logically and you think they're either trivial or irrelevant to you, it's gonna be hard for you to understand what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think we, and, and, and I mean, this is, this is again, uh, one of the differences between wisdom and knowledge is knowledge is about evidence that deals with ignorance and wisdom is about uh, relevance that deals with foolishness. And it, it, wisdom is much more about understanding than it is about, you know, tr the true theory of a thing. 
Um, and, and, and we were lucky that's the case, right? Because if wisdom depended on getting the true theory of things, we're pretty screwed. And we've been pretty screwed for most of history uh, because our metaphysical accounts of reality, of course, have been you know, mostly false in, in important ways. Um, so I think, I mean, it, it's a gift of the gods that wisdom isn't reducible or identical to, to, to knowledge. And so here's the final thing I'm saying. What we want is wise, right relationship with other people, not the ultimate true account of things about them. This makes me think about how in an increasingly digital world where you know, many people are communicating with text and, and Twitter yeah. and maybe at, at best voice notes and things like that, we're probably biasing our relationships totally. and communication style yeah. to the propositional side of the spectrum. And the evidence that that's deleterious to our relationships and even to our relationship to ourselves is mounting. It's just, it's deleterious. It's, 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 it's bad. I mean, the, the thing, you know, I mean, we're in COVID, so there's a sense in which this is an impotent recommendation, but the thing that we could do to most improve our mental health very rapidly is get off as much social media as we possibly could. Um, and, and the evidence for how deleterious this is to us, and, and, and we're doing this horrible social experiment because um, the evidence is mounting that it's bad for us, I mean, I'm not saying there's no good. I'm saying on balance, okay? Mm -hmm. I want to be clear about that. On balance, it's bad for us. And now we're raising kids basically from birth in this uh, arena uh, without really paying attention to the profound transformation. It's greater than the transformation from an illiterate to a illiterate society. What we're doing with people is we're like, you know, you, you can now meet people. I believe the millennials are in this category. That have they that they have never like there was never a point in their life in which they weren't immersed in social media, mm -hmm. um, and the the effects this is having. I, and I'm not here criticizing them or or, or or tarnishing them all with the same brush. What I'm saying is we have experimented as a culture on that generation in a way that we have done thoughtlessly, without research or science. And we have done it on the basis of some pretty um, questionable common sense assumptions uh, that the empirical evidence is progressively undermining. Um, and we don't know what the consequences of that's going to be. So yeah, I think, I think what you pointed to there is very important. And it's, it's important in a way that I think is very problematic for us. I want to take a step back and then connect back to this uh, social media phenomena. Um, one of the things I'm I'm curious about is making this kind of conversation, which is admittedly quite heady for a lot of people, salient and relevant yeah. to yeah. people who are not geared, let's say, in the in the way that, you know, as philosophically, let's say, as, as you and I might be. Um, and part of me sharing that example about my my relationships is is to show that um, wisdom is actually important. It matters. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. the better I am at relating to people I love, the better the quality of my life and the, the less pain that I cause. And um, so a, a question that comes to mind, um, tying back into the social media experiment. So I have a, I have a younger cousin who, I, I don't know her very well, but uh, she's about 19, 20. And I think two Christmases ago, I, I stole her phone from her playfully and looked at the screen time 
metric that shows how, on average how many hours are you spending on your phone. And uh, maybe it was because it was the holidays, but she was averaging nine hours on her phone on mostly TikTok and Instagram. Yeah. And so my, my question is, how can someone like that care about wisdom? Or how do I make wisdom relevant to somebody in that world? And I'm not criticizing her. I, I think in, in, no, in a way no. it's, it's something that she's unfortunately fallen into. Yeah. But I think that's a really important uh, puzzle. And maybe that's not uh, your job or, our, or my job, but I, th I think that's somebody's job. Well, well, I think, I mean, it's, I think it's partially my, something for which I have uh, responsibility. And I think of the work of people like uh, Han, um, who are, they, they bridge between sort of, you know, philosophy and what we might call cultural criticism. Like, you know, his stuff on, you know, the scent of time, the agony of eros, saving beauty, the loss of ritual, right? And, 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 and I think that points towards something. Um, and maybe there's, a, 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 this is sort of a platonic or Socratic lesson. Don't start with wisdom. Mm. Start with something that they are engaged in. Um, start with something like beauty. Mm. Why, is it, why is this attractive to you? And, 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 and don't, you know, and don't do that as just a, as, a, as a first play to get them event. Like, no, no, really spend time, really soak into this. Um, why is this attractive to you? And, and I, I want to know, I want to understand, I want to get your world. Why is this attractive to you? Because when you, 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 you start at the level of salience before you can get people to consider significance. Right. So why is it standing out to you? How is it standing out to you? And then, and then ask the other, like, is there any way in which this, you know, it, it doesn't work or leads you astray or makes you uncomfortable or dissatisfied? Right. Again, don't leap into, and how is this deceiving you? Leap into, how does this feel kind of out of joint to you? Like, do you, does it, does it make you anxious? Mm. Does it make you anxious? So it's, it's attractive but it's making you anxious. And so what, what do you think is going on? Like, that's how I would start. I, I and, and you know, this is, this is basically the Socratic move. Well, what are you, what are you caring about? What are you attracted to? Well, why do you think it's beautiful? Is it really making you happy? Or do you, are you believing it's making you happy when it's actually making you miserable? These are classic Socratic moves. And then, and then, you know, when people start talking about that, you, you can slowly then move into, you know, some virtues. Well, how honest is this? How honest are you being with other people and yourself? Is the anxiety around some sort of level of superficiality or dishonesty? Ah, oh, yeah. And then you get into virtue. And, then, and that's how you lead people. And I don't mean mislead them or manipulate them. Uh, Socrates compared it to midwifing, actually helping somebody to give birth. And notice the word conceive means mm. ultimately uh, to be capable of giving birth, right? Um, and, and that's how that's how you that's how you have to do it. You have to start. You have to start at where people are plugged in uh, at the uh, uh, sort of a, a perspectival and participatory level, and get them to loosen up and stand back and look at it. The problem is it's mostly transparent to them. They're looking through it. You want to get them to get back, right? That sort of core move of rationality and mindfulness. Step back and look at it. Don't don't first don't say and then look over here. 
say, no, no, let's step back and look at it. Let's look at it deeply. Let's look at it from multiple angles. Let's look at what's working, what's not working, and and then try to open people up from that. And and, and that does, that's not an algorithm. That's not guaranteed to succeed. Yeah. Because you know you might do that with somebody, and they might say, "No, I'm really happy." As they nervously twitch and are anxiously right. trying to get back to their phone, they might just be dishonest with themselves, or they might say, "No, I'm never misleading anybody. It's not superficial. This is the way it really is. This is the way it really is." And they know they know that's not true. They know that people are taking hours staging these pictures and rehearsing, and it's all pretense. It's all terrific pretense driven by algorithms that make us feel insecure and aggressive because that will help us consume more product and devote more attention uh, to the people who want to manipulate us. Addiction um, is a good business model. It is a very good business model. Um, yeah. Yeah. So something that comes to mind there is uh, that isn't a Socratic dialogue, which is what you basically demonstrated. Isn't that just... A, you isn't that propositional isn't that using well, propositions to make maybe perspectival shifts and how effective could that be so that's the thing and i mean that's the like if you work if you read like well, and i'm doing all of this because i'm still working on after socrates i'm actually glad that it was delayed by covid because mm. i thought, I thought uh, it's afforded me getting so much deeper into this material um and it's just oh it's it's, it's amazing and, and, you know, Gonzalez and others about the non-propositional. The point, uh, yes, it's propositional. But as you said, um, it's propositional of that point. So Plato would often do something where he'd, he'd be propositional and then he'd, he'd compare it to techne, he'd compare it to a skill. Well, isn't it like being a carpenter? Isn't it like being a doctor? And people would shift into the, into the procedural. And then they and then they, but it's ultimately not like the procedural, right? Because techne means you you know what you're doing, and we're you're like I don't know what I'm doing as I'm trying to become honest, like I'm figuring it out. Like so, it's not really expertise. What is it? And then people start to step back and they get into this aporia. They like whoa, I was thinking like my salient landscape is kind of like becoming unglued. They realize how much they're bullshitting themselves, how much how much their salience is beyond what they understand, uh, right? But not in the sense of wonder which is opening us up, but in the sense of, you know, we're, we're deceiving ourselves. And that, but what can happen is you can get that aspect shift. Instead of it, that being the gap of bullshit, it can flip and it becomes the gap of wonder in you. And wonder is like curiosity is about knowledge, but wonder is about wisdom, right? Wisdom begins in wonder. It's, you're starting to call yourself and others into question. And, and if you notice in the dialogues, right, the aporias, the people where people pass into wonder are being complemented by the fact that Socrates often cannot give a definition of what is at issue he at what he does is exemplifies it in the practice of the dialectic mm -hmm. so you'll have people arguing about courage and what socrates will do is he'll challenge the common sense intuition they know and people and then and then the people come in with their third person technical definitions blah, 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 and he'll and he'll, he'll undermine both of those and then people are like and then what you see is he doesn't come to a definition but if you, if you, what you'll see is, for example, the people that, that he was arguing with will say, although there's no definition, they want their sons to come and spend time with Socrates. Mm. Because what Socrates is doing is exemplifying courage throughout the dialogue, even though, because it's not something that can be captured in a definition. And that's because relevance can't be captured in propositions. Uh, relevance is not a property of propositions, but a property you know, between propositions and other propositions and the world and other kinds of knowing. This reminds me of uh, Pierre Hadot. Of course. 
tremendous influence on me. Yeah. Tremendous and deep influence on me. But one thing, um, I actually can't remember which, which essay it was, but one thing that I thought was really interesting was when all those philosophies were kind of um, debating about their propositions, their practices were actually very similar. So you had the Stoics yeah. and the Epicureans, yeah. um, but they would all kind of do similar practices, even though their maps of reality were, were very different at a propositional level. Yep. And, and you, you see something similar when you, uh, when you have Christian monastics and Buddhist monastics talking to each other. They have very different, you know, if, you know, there's a non-theist uh, ontology and a theistic ontology, and there's a salvation narrative over here and an enlightenment narrative over here. So uh, there's all these differences, but then they're doing these same practices. And, and this goes towards an important thing for me uh, that, uh, it, it, and I think this is very relevant to what's happening in the world right now, because um, I'm actually trying to come up with a, a way of understanding pluralism mm -hmm. that is different, that pluralism is often assimilated to relativism, and then it's contrasted to perennialism or universalism. And I think that's, I think that's incorrect. I think there's a way of thinking of pluralism that makes it distinct and better to both relativism and universalism. And this has to do with relevance realization. And the analogy, and it's meant to be not actually more than an analogy, it's meant to be a continuum. It's the idea of you know, uh, Darwinian fitness, the way we are adaptively fitted to the environment. Now, notice this, there's a universal account of the process which is, you know, evolution by natural selection, right? So there's a universal process, but that doesn't mean its products are homogeneous and the same. Mm. In fact, evolution is continually producing new and different things that are appropriately fitted to the new and different environments that are available. So although there is a universal process of the evolution of adaptivity, that doesn't mean that there is a universal essence of as, well, that, like there's one species, for example, around the globe. In fact, it's the other way. It branches into the tree, right? Um, but the tree isn't chaotic in, in the sense that it's unintelligible because it's ultimate. They are all right. They are all products of the same kind of process, and it's the same thing. I think wisdom is kind of the high, the the the, the best evolution of our relevance realization machinery, that doesn't mean that being wise here in Toronto is going to produce the same kind of individual leading the same kind of life as somebody in, you know, uh, you know, ancient China during the Han dynasty. Mm -hmm. um, that what, what, we, what we should be able to do is explain both of the variants in terms of underlying universals, like what we're trying to do in the wisdom paper. But that doesn't mean that the, you know, the particular sets of propositions and uh, socio-cultural roles that people lay out, socioeconomic organizations are all gonna look the same. That doesn't make any sense given the theory. So it's neither, you know, it's neither relativistic nor universalistic, it's pluralistic. And that's, and that's the thing. The, the ancient schools were, they had variations because they were appealing to different aspects of human beings. You can plausibly say, you know, some different socioeconomic, sociocultural groups, but they were all trying to cultivate wisdom and virtue. And that's why, right, the processes tended to be shared and universal, although there was variations in, um, you know, as you said, between the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Stoics are emphasizing meaning, the Epicureans are emphasizing pleasure. And, you know, not to step on anybody's toes, uh, I know you, uh, you sometimes identify as a Stoic, right? Um, um, I, I think they're, they, 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 they're, they're both right, 
that um, um, there's times when we should be paying much more attention to meaning. But, you know, Socrates was very clear that a life without pleasure is also not a good life. And so uh, does that mean we just leave pleasure uh, to run on its own? No, well, the Epicureans say, no, no, you've got to be, you, you've got to be really careful about your pleasuring. Um, and, 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 and sometimes that's the crucial thing uh, to pay attention to. And so um, it, it, I think that lesson that you pointed to in the ancient schools is one that we can, can transfer very readily to our situation today. And you know, I try to use it when I'm having discussions with people of good faith, and I mean that in multiple ways, uh, um, who ha often have a different metaphysical and epistemological orientation from me. But nevertheless, we can reach down to universal processes of wisdom, cultivation, and meaning-making in order to turn that from an adversarial zero-sum game into what I call genuine dialogos. So. Yeah, so that, that's something I wanted to pick up on because what I got from what you said is that the process that's uh, upstream of different, let's say, religions, worldviews, practices, propositional maps of reality, that process might be the same. That might be yes. universal. Um, but those products could still be sufficiently different that there's conflict between them, yes. that they're mutually exclusive. And I imagine this is one of the many things that feeds in to the meaning crisis. Yes. The meaning yes. crisis is in part a product of scale, the scale of you know too many people, too many different worldviews that are mutually exclusive. Yeah. So is that something, I know this is probably at the, at the edge of your, your work, but do you think that it is something that we could reconcile? Well, I mean, uh, we, the, the, the wisdom schools that you mentioned and that Pierre Hadot talked about, they largely, I think almost, I mean, some of them have precursors before, but they mostly originate during the period of Hellenistic domicide, right? When basically, um, you had the disruption, uh, the post, uh, the post Alexander world, the Hellenistic, right? World is a world, uh, uh, you know, that's a, that's a much more uh, like a, like our globalism, a much more mixing of languages, religions, ethnicities. People are no longer grounded. There's there's been much more migration and interpenetration. Um, uh, there's you know the mixing and encountering of you know many different religions that had largely been locally uh, practiced and isolated from each other. And, and there was a period of domicide. Um, and that's why the model of the philosopher changed, Epicurus, call no man a philosopher who has not alleviated the suffering of others. The alleviation of anxiety, what we would today call anxiety, and the potential that, like, that, they, that they're being shocked at the, the level of participatory and perspectival knowing um, was something that all of these wisdom uh, uh, schools grew up in. But we noticed that they were able to have Although they argued with each other, they were able to uh, enter into genuine dialogue with each other because, as Hado said, they sh they 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 did not focus their attention. Sorry, maybe that's not even the right word. They did not ultimately identify with their discourse. They identified mm. with their transformation. They thought the discourse was important, but as Hado and many people have argued, and this is clear if you read Epictetus, right? You know, he, he says the people who talk philosophy are not the real philosophers. They don't really love wisdom because you can't you can't love wisdom. It, it's like you can't love a person if you're not willing to undergo profound transformations of your identity. If you come to say somebody and you say, I'm going to fall deeply in love with you, but it's not going to change me in any way, my identity and who and what I am, that's not that like, that's you're doomed. 
right? It's right. the same thing. And so they shared, and I now want, to, want you to really hear this word deeply. They shared a love of wisdom and shared, uh, you know, uh, cultivation of virtue and transformation uh, of identity, cultivation of character that they saw as that's what they identified with much more than the discourse. Now they disagreed and, and, and as they should, because I think I would argue the disagreement is part of the way in which we help to evolve our fittedness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, that, and that was good. And so, yes, I do think there's a model there for us. If we could shift off the having our beliefs, right? This is, you know, I'm thinking of Fromm here, ultimately gets this from the Stoics. If we could shift off this identifying with having our beliefs, Stephen Batchelor has talked about this from Buddhism, right? Buddhism without beliefs. Uh, if we could shift off that to identifying with our shared love for wisdom and our shared processes of transformation, I think we could resituate debate within dialogos and that would right that we wouldn't resolve these debates we're not supposed to i mean democracy is born originally out of the idea that we're not going to resolve these debates what we're going to do is set them into opponent processing so that they are constantly correcting each other and we'll move back and forth between things and then we we lost that and we've turned it into no no this one set of beliefs must ultimately crush and destroy the other set if we could get back to no no the debate is part of the self-correction, and the self-correction is in service of our shared love for wisdom and meaning and our shared participation in universal processes of transformation. I, I love the way you put that, and I, I mean that, I guess, technically now. I, in closing, I, I want to tie that into something personal that I've experienced and just have, your, have you react to it. Um, one of the things I've noticed that's changed uh, over the years in terms of my, my values is my particular understanding of what it means to pursue the truth. Mm. I think when I was, ever since I was quite young, I had learned the importance of that being a very central value. Yeah, if is. you're not pursuing the truth, then a lot of other things don't really make sense. But what I've begun to realize, and I'm still in the middle of this, is that the way that I would tend to pursue the truth would be very um, almost rule-based and, and yeah. philosophical and propositional in a way that kind of sounds like how you're describing uh, correct beliefs. Right. So um, I would try and be truthful, and it was almost like I'm following precise linguistic rules. Right. And I've, right. I've now realized, and I, and I want to know what you think of this, that... Pursuing the truth or truth orientedness can be an entirely nonverbal, non-conceptual phenomena that, for lack of better words, starts in the heart. And I, I can now identify states where it's almost like my heart opens yeah. and I'm so much closer to the truth when I'm there than when I'm trying to articulate the truth as best as I possibly can. Um, and I feel like that's related to uh, that healthy relationship between different schools of beliefs and and yep. the fundamental underlying process of wisdom that you're referring to. But I just want to hear uh, your reaction to that. Well, I, I, I mean, I, uh, it sounds to me like you're discovering um, there's more to truth than, um, uh, you know, correctness of semantic content. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and, and notice even the word true. I mean, it goes back to troth, which has to do with like betrothed, 
which means like being true to someone, which is at that level of the participatory knowing. Uh, but it also, you know, the your aim is true, which is your perspectival kind of orientation, right? And then, uh, you know, there, there's an aspect of, uh, you know, of truth in the way in, in, in which, um, you, you know, uh, the, the thing ran true, which is like your procedural, your skill was applied well, right? Mm. Now, and I think we should remember all of that. And then Heidegger points about that the beyond, beneath the correctness model is what he calls aletheia, which is this opening up, right, uh, of affordances that I've been talking, you know, this is the, the disclosure of the, of the fittedness between you and the world that makes all these other kinds of knowing possible. I, uh, and, I and I think that's good. And, re and remembering all of those dimensionalities to truth, uh, I think is important. I tend to, uh, I do that sometimes, but uh, for purely rhetorical reasons, that's often not a very successful strategy because while people will hear that within a minute or two, it, they will default back to the truth of the, uh, they'll default back to propositional truth. Mm -hmm. So I now talk about realness and reality. Mm. And I talk about truth as that property for propositions, power as that property for our skills, presence as that property uh, for our perspectives and belonging as that property for our participation. Um, and, and that picks up on all those those truths, the, all the ways we use truth. Um, and um, I say that well, what we ultimately are oriented towards is reality. Um, uh, and so, and being, and saying true things about it, running true with it, being true to it, right? And, uh, you know, having our aim towards it be true. Um, if, if you'll allow me to play with those words a little bit. And so for me, um, wisdom is a, a big part about realizing the depths of the dimensionality of truth or what I call realness and learning to appropriately respect. That means to look correctly at the thing, to get into right relationships with all of the dimensionalities, with all of the dimensionalities of which I am capable of. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I really love that. Thank you so much for the conversation, John. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Daniel. And I mean, if you ever want me to come back, I'd be happy to do so. Yeah, I, I'd love that. I like what you did. It was very helpful um, where you would take the abstract discourse and uh, translate it back into, you know, personal experience, personal transformation. That was very helpful. Thank you for doing that.